All right, we come to the point in our worship service where we have the opportunity, but also the privilege in this free land to open up our Bibles and hear uh, a word from the Lord. And so in light of that, what I, if you have your Bibles with you, what I'd like you to do is um, actually turn to two places. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 14. So if you're somewhat new to the Bible, that's the fifth book of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy comes in chapters. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And I want you to put your finger there. And then what I want you to do is I want you to turn forward to the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is well known as a chapter in the Bible that is exclusively devoted in its entirety to uh, the, what we call the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the whole of the Christian religion centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You cannot understand Christianity. You cannot be a Christian without understanding who Jesus is and what he's done, right? And when we look at the Bible, we read about his suffering, his death, but also what we call his resurrection. That is, that he rose from the dead. He's not a dead Savior, but he's very much alive. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then I'm going to draw your attention back to uh, a relatively uh, obscure and what some people would be, maybe call it kind of a weird text, a strange text, but I hope to, to demonstrate, it, uh, demonstrate its relevancy for us. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, it's very lengthy, so let's start reading at verse 50. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality." When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is victory in death, all because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the main theme of this passage from 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, it also happens to be the main point of the text that we're considering now, way back, about 3,500 years ago, during the time of Moses and the Israelites, Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. Pay attention to these words. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any boldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You know what this text ultimately is about? It's not only about the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, but it's about life. 
That this life that we have here below is not all that there is, but there is life to come. But already now, the Lord is encouraging us by saying the life that you are to experience in the fullness, in the, in the world to come, what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth, I want you to have that life now. I want you to experience that life now. And this is why, um, when you consider what I just said, Christians have always been known as the people who support life. Now, um, as you know, for those of you who are members at Pathway, you have an American in your midst. And it's, it's kind of strange being here as an American. Not strange in the sense like, uh, Joy and I don't really like our new country. We really do. We really do enjoy Canada. It's not the first time that we have lived here. In fact, it is the, the third time that we've lived in Canada. But we are well aware of the fact, still by our customs and even the way that we think and some of our perspectives, that we're still American. We're still kind of... Well, if I may say it, pilgrims in this land, you know, uh, feeling sometimes, not overtly so, but sometimes as foreigners, even though there's just a couple miles that separate us from this spot and the border to the U.S. But the reason I bring that out is because, because still as Americans, Joy and I have a vested interest in, in what's going on in our country, just as you do, because oftentimes what happens in the U.S. spills over into Canada. And of course, you've been following this whole issue with the U.S. Supreme Court and and all the hullabaloo that's happening, and the rioting, and the bombings of, of um, and, and the vandalism of pregnancy centers, those, are, those, those should be near and dear to us. And in the church in Phoenix, and I'm going to share a little bit of a story a little bit later on, we had a, a wonderful African-American woman uh, join our church who went to a pregnancy center ready to end her pregnancy, but we had somebody from our church working there and said, no, 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 and convinced her and says, come to our church. And she did. She became a member, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell that story a little bit later on. But more could be said about that. But, uh, you know, behind, behind the change in Roe versus Wade were many people who are not Christians who supported life, but many of them were Christians. And Christians don't like to stir up trouble, but the fact of the matter is, if you're going to live out your Christian life, you have to be a people of conviction, and a people who, as the Bible does, support life. And we're going to be taking a look at that from this text. Now, this text, if you take a look at it, when, it, when I was reading it, you're probably thinking, well, this is, this is a weird text, this is a strange text, and, and it, uh, it just, it, it, it's kind of strange in this way. It, has, it, it, it spells out two, two affirmations. First of all, it says... And there's just two among four. I'll get to the four a little bit later on. But first of all, it says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. In other words, God's saying, you belong to me. And you are holy to the Lord your God. That is, you're set apart to God to live in the way that he wants you to live. But then there are two prohibitions, two affirmations, two prohibitions. The prohibitions basically is this. The Lord says, because you belong to me, I don't want you to cut yourselves. And I don't want you to shave your, your heads for the sake of the dead. And we look at that, and we kind of go, all right, well, it's, it's all kind of strange. I'm not sure what that's all about. And it all seems, the, the language here seems rather in antiquated. And kids, I don't know, antiquated kind of a big term. But what I mean by that, it just, the, 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 the verses that I read from Deuteronomy 14 just seem um, uh, just so long ago, a different time and a different culture. And, and really the text, if we read it, kind of, you know, whether, whether we're new to the Bible or we're very familiar with the Bible but never really read this text, it just makes us think, really, how relevant is this? What does it really have to do with me? And I'm here to tell you this morning, it has everything to do with you, it has everything to do with me, and it has everything to do 
with something that's going to happen to every one of us. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And uh, some of us are closer to that threshold of moving from death to eternal life than others. Some of us are middle-aged, starting to feel that. Older age is creeping in. Some of us are 70s, 80s. And when you read the obituaries in the papers or online, you know, there's a lot of people die in their 80s. If in your 70s or 80s, how are you preparing for the world to come? How are you preparing for that day? Are you looking at it with dread? Or are you looking at it with hope? With hope. One final thing before I get into the text. Kids, I don't know if your grandpa and grandmas are still alive. Sometimes grandpas and grandmas, they, they die when we're much younger. Sometimes they live in their 70s or 80s or more, and they die when we're a bit older. If you haven't faced the death of your grandpa and grandma, you are going to face that one day. And one day, when you get a little bit older, probably you're going to see your parents die as well. Both my parents are gone now. Joyce's parents, one of them is alive, one of them has died. We were there at their bedside. We saw them die and pass over to the other side. We're all going to die, and the fact of the matter is we, um, we're all going to face the death of loved ones. Okay, here's, here's the question that our text poses. How are you going to deal with that death? Well or poorly? With dread and a sorrow that just never goes away? Or with hope? of something better to come. That's what we're considering here this morning, all right? We are in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Deuteronomy 14, but let me put it in the broader context of the book of Deuteronomy as a whole. The word Deuteronomy is actually two different words, deutero and nomos, Greek, meaning from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It literally means second law or the giving of the second law. So stick with me here a little bit. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. If you've been raised in the Christian faith, you will know that the the Ten Commandments are found in in the Bible in two different places as just Ten Commandments, as a summary of the will of God. Exodus chapter 20, which was the first giving of law at Mount Sinai when the people of God were in their wilderness wanderings. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt. Here's the context. For 430 years, then God redeemed his people. He freed them through the hand of Moses, had them go through a wilderness wandering period of about 40 years, and finally, they get to what's called the plains of Moab, which borders what is called the promised land, the land of Canaan, a beautiful land and a productive land. So right now in this passage, they're on the plains of Moab, poised to enter into the promised land. And it's during this time of waiting now to get into the promised land that Moses delivers a sermon. And really the book of Deuteronomy is the sermon of Moses. How'd you like to have to sit through that sermon? Sometimes you think it's bad to have to sit through 35 or 40 minutes. Man, this would take you hours and hours. That's the sermon of Moses. And in this sermon, Moses essentially says to his people, it's, it's basically this. He says, listen, God has freed you from Egypt. You went through the wilderness. Now you're poised to enter into the promised land. And the fact of the matter is, this land is a land, it's called promise, because it was promised to your forefather Abraham many centuries before. Now, finally, 
You are on the border of that land, ready to go in. And I want to tell you something, says Moses. There are people currently living in that land, inhabitants in the land, and they think that land belongs to them. They think they own that land. But let me tell you something. They don't own that land. God owns that land. That land belongs to him, and God gets to do with that land what he wants. And what God chose to do is give you, my people, that land. But the problem is here, they're inhabitants in that land. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to fight the peoples of that land. That's what you're going to have to do. And you're going to have to drive them out. And here's the thing. If you don't drive them out, they're going to become snares to you. They're going to become traps to you. Here's the thing Moses is saying to the people of God. Not only do I want you to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but I don't want you to embrace their gods and I don't want you to embrace the practices of their religion because they will destroy you. Remember this. Remember your identity. You belong to the Lord your God. And by virtue of that, guess what? You're different. You're just different. It's very interesting in the passage, and I'm going to get to this, this uh, strange double command of the Lord that the people are not to shave their heads or cut themselves for the sake of their head. But before I do that, what I want, to, what I want us to understand is that, that God through Moses is saying to his people, first, before I give you these prohibitions about how to deal with death, please understand this. You need to understand your identity, who you are, who are you. If you take a look at verses 1 and 2, God says four things. This is who you are. I'm just going to touch on each of these. God says, first of all, you are the sons of the Lord your God. How does he put it? You are the sons, again, of the Lord your God. Now, Brother Fred Strook this past week, he was assigned this passage as an intern, and we gathered as a few people at Jan Scudder's uh, uh, shop, and we heard Fred speak. And Fred and I had an opportunity to talk about this, and I don't remember if he brought it up or if I brought it up, but, but if you look in the original language, in the Hebrew language, the word sons is the very first word that you read in this passage, so for the sake of emphasis. So literally, it kind of reads like this, sons, you are of the Lord your God. Or if you're a female, you could put it this way, sons and daughters, you are of the Lord your God. In other words, your children that belong to God, you are His. And notice what it says here, you are the sons of the Lord your God. The word Lord here is from the Hebrew Yahweh, and what it really gets at is when you think of covenant, and you could have series of sermons on this word, but I'm just going to say this, when you think of covenant, think fundamentally of a formal bond of friendship and love. So basically what God is saying is, I'm in this bond of friendship and love with you, and as a result of that, I consider you my son's and my daughters. That's your identity. Secondly, he goes on to say, as sons and daughters, you are holy to me. That is, you have been set apart to me. Thirdly, he goes on to say to his people, guess what? You are also chosen. You're my chosen. In the Bible, you see two different ways that that word is chosen. Individually, but also when it comes to Israel as a nation. Why do I bring that out? Because what God is saying here is this. He said, you know what? Of all, and you read this earlier in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord says, of all the peoples are on the face of the earth. 
and you step outside these doors right here and you get into Abbotsford and you get into this province and the rest of Canada, you know there are many different types of peoples, nationalities, cultures, and so on. And what God is saying, He's saying, of all these peoples, all these nations, guess what? I, I have chosen you. Not because you're more powerful, not because you're more moral than anyone else around you, but simply out of my good pleasure, I have chosen you, and I've chosen to place my love upon you. And the fourth thing he says, because of that, I count you as my treasured, treasured possession. You are my gems. So really what the Lord is saying through Moses is this. You, my people, I'm your God. You are my people. As my people, you are my sons and daughters. You are holy. You are set apart to me. You are treasured. You are chosen. You are all of these things. All of these things are wrapped up in their identity. All right. Now, I spent last five, ten minutes just explaining things. Let's step back and get a little bit of a breather. I think it's important in sermons that we just kind of go, you know, it's part of the rhythm of preaching, okay? Step back for a moment. Just let this, let this kind of soak in like a gentle rain. Here you are sitting this morning. How do you consider yourself? as a Christian, okay? If you come here this morning and you're new to this place and you would not necessarily call yourself a Christian, I'm not so sure how you view your identity and how you view your standing before God. I leave that with you for now. But if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and you belong to the church, whether this church or another church, and you're seeking to lead a godly life, do you identify what I've just said here in terms of how God speaks about His people? Do you view yourself as a son and daughter of the King? And by virtue of that, do you, do you view yourself as different? Kids, do you think you're different? I'm not talking when you're at school and you're playing on the playground, maybe kids bully you or tease you because you're just kind of the odd kid out. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about who you are in Jesus, who you are as a Christian. Do you feel different? Even as adults, do we feel, do we feel different? Because, because you know what? Nobody likes to feel different. I feel different every time I get in my car on a Sunday morning. I'm driving along and I see people jogging. Or I see people going out for breakfast. Or I live near, uh, what is it, the, the Delaire Park. Baseball games are getting ready. And, you know, here I am kind of dressed up. This is what I do as a pastor. But, man, you feel kind of, you feel very strange sometimes. Just very different. But here's the thing. It's not always negative. It's not always a bad thing to be different. Different, here's the thing. When you're different... Think about this. You are the most free, liberated person in the world because you've been liberated to live in a way whereby you receive the umbrella of the smile of God's face and blessings upon you, but also this, you have been liberated to, in the context of our passage, you've been liberated to face death without a sense of finality and without, without dread and without the kind of sorrow that just never really kind of goes away. Isn't that what a text says? You are the sons of the Lord your God. Now, by virtue of that, if you want, if you want to be free 
and you want to retain your joy in life, but also as you face death, then you shall not, as my children, you shall not cut yourselves or make any boldness on your foreheads for the sake of the dead. Now, let me say something at this point. You know, when you, when you examine the Bible, um, when, you, when, you, when you read a text like this in light of the whole Bible, you, you don't get a sense that because God says, I don't want you to cut yourself or shave your heads, that therefore, um, you, I, I don't really want you to grieve. Grief is a, hum, grief is a human thing. Grief is, and you can't escape grief. I remember when my brother died at age 27, I saw... I actually saw physically the stress that that death had, especially on my parents. My dad, who was in his 50s, about my age at the time, just uh, two things happened to him. He had this, this big wound that, just, that started on his head. It was a stress wound. And um, from, from, from the time that my brother died, from that time on, my dad always had constantly he had Hall's mentholiptus in his pockets and he would be dropping tons of those in every day because his mouth dried out there was stress the stress of death you know God's not saying you know like the Greeks you just be stoic and you deal with it and you soldier on in death because you know what there's something better to come to grieve is human to grieve is human. And when you look at God's people in the Bible, this is how they grieved. They wailed. They lamented. They wore sackcloth and ashes, and they put dirt on their heads. Remember, there are Mediterranean people, and Mediterranean peoples tend to be very expressive, right? The nations did the same thing. They had many of these same practices, but they went one step further. They also cut themselves, and they shaved their heads for the sake of the dead. Now, you say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, maybe you should ask someone, and maybe you have experienced this as well. I don't know. But sometimes people engage in self-harm. And they will take little blades, and they will, they will cut their forearms or cut different parts of their body. And little kids listen to that, and they go, why would they do that? It's their way of identifying with pain. And maybe a way of of, of just trying to, trying to rid themselves of that pain. Same thing here. Um, they were also not to shave their heads for the sake of the dead. By the way, by the way, this is not the main point of this sermon, but you know what? If you struggle with that, you struggle with some of those things, you know, the self-harm, you know, talk to me. Seek help. Don't continue with that, okay? Talk to me. We'll talk this through, all right? This is part of the pastoral work of the church. I just want to throw that out there, okay? The cutting issue. There's also the shaving of the head. And the shaving of the head was a sign not only of pain, but, but also kind of um, humiliation and a shared grief. When I went into the military, it was at Fort Knox, Kentucky in 1982. You know what the first thing they do when you go in there? You go through a processing station, and then it's time for the basic training itself. And the first thing you do is you go to a barber. And some of these guys, have, they're young, you know, they got this long flowing hair. And they just cycle you through. And they do that, and it takes them 30 seconds to get rid of your hair. That's it. And then you look around, and you're going like this all the time because it feels so weird. And you're looking at all the guys around you, and we're all the same. And that's the point. They don't want any individuality in the military. You all need to be the same. You need to obey commands and all of that. 
But the point is, it's kind of a humiliating thing to have all your hair and your head shaved off. But it's a way of identifying with others. There's a shared experience. Here's my point. When the individuals of the nations around them shave their heads, and when they cut themselves, it was their way of sharing grief, and it was a way of identifying with death, with the finality of death, the hopelessness of death, the despair of death. And God says, you know what? You're my people. Uh Uh-uh. Not you. Not you. I don't want you to I don't want you to do that. Why is that? Why is that? Because you belong to me? Yeah. But here's the thing. And this is where you have to take the this is where you have to take the whole of the Bible in the context. As a context. God says, I don't want you to adopt these grieving processes because you not only belong to me, but here's the thing. Your Messiah, which we know is Jesus, your Messiah is going to come. And you're going to look forward to this Messiah, and when this Messiah comes, he is going to be a figure who not only suffers and dies and pays the penalty for your sin, but he's not going to remain dead, but he's going to rise from the dead. No, I don't want you to grieve like the nations around you because Easter is coming. Easter is coming. And what is Easter all about? Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about the life of Christ, and it's also about ongoing life for all those who entrust themselves to Jesus by faith. You know, the early church, and A.V., get ready for this, okay? The early church uh, um, celebrated this life and understood well the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they found in it the ground of their hope and their comfort. So if you go to catacombs, old catacombs, you will see a symbol that represents life, particularly the resurrection life of Jesus Christ and that life that he gives to us. It comes in the form of a bird. I don't know if you know what bird that is, but if you put it up there. Kids, that's a peacock. I'll be real quick with this. That's an old catacomb. It's a peacock. Go to the next one. There you go. There you have the cross, and you see those two birds there, peacocks. And you say, why a peacock? Because, according to ancient tradition, the peacock represented three things. It represented royalty. Because Kids, I don't know if you've ever seen a peacock as a bird. They're incredible birds. They're beautiful birds, and they have these long feathers. And do you remember the colors of peacocks, birds' feathers? They're, 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 they're purple and they're blue. Those are the, those are the um, like this purple here. It's, um, it's, a, it's a color. Blue and purple are colors of royalty. Jesus is king. Christians understood that. Um, peacocks also represented immortality. The ancient Greeks believed that when peacocks died, their flesh never decayed. Jesus' body never decayed. And it's also a symbol of purity, the peacock. And also, Jesus was pure. He was sinless. He needed to be that way for him to atone for sinners like us. Early church embraced and were comforted by the truth of the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. And yet, yet what does this world really know about that? Now, very quickly, the story about this this African-American woman who joined our church in, uh, in Phoenix. She came to us, I already went into the background of how she came to us, Um, I'm not going to get into that for the sake of time, but um, as time went on, a couple of years after she joined the church, and I shared this, if you have been here for a while, I've shared a video with you at one point of this, maybe you can recall that, where she had a brother who 
died when he was 25 in a drug deal gone bad. He was shot. And she grew up in a very dysfunctional family, and this, this brother of hers who died was a part of that dysfunctional family. And when he was shot dead, the family of this woman, who never really wanted to have anything to do with Christianity or the church, um, uh, asked if I would do that funeral because they wanted a man of the cloth. You see, when people are down and out, that's when they kind of seek pastoral help. Would you do this funeral? And they wanted me to do the funeral, and they wanted me to do what we call the interment or the graveside service. And I said, sure, because, you know, you have an opportunity to share the faith in Jesus, right? So did the funeral, and we came to the graveside service. And I'll never forget this. I stood there before maybe 40 or 50 individuals, and the coffin was in front of me, and I read some Bible verses, said a few words, and then I sang the doxology, praise God from whom all blessing flows, and I sang it by myself because I realized that nobody there even had ever heard of that before. So I sang that song, and then it came time for the lowering of this coffin into the ground, and then something unexpected happened as it was lowering into the ground. They had this big station wagon there, and they opened up the back doors or a van or something like that, and then the hip-hop music started to play. Now, I'm not accustomed to that in a Christian graveside service. But as I'm listening to that, and as the body is being lowered into the ground, as the hip-hop is playing, there are people on their knees, and they're grieving, and they're despairing, and they're despairing of the senselessness of this violence and this death. And they would, you know how they comfort each other? They'd go around to each other, and you know what people say. They're like, well, you know but he's in a better place. Even those people just say that. They want to believe that. Oh, he's just in a better place, you know. And I look, I, I, I look at the way that they grieve, and I think of this text, and I think of that, 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 that graveside service in light of this culture of death in which we are living in. We in Canada... U.S., in the North American context, we live in a culture of death. We live in a culture of fentanyl overdoses. We live in a culture of violence. We think of the war in Ukraine. We think of, of school shootings and mass, de mass deaths. And, and it, just, it, just, it just goes on and on. And we can't escape this culture of death. But the Lord... The Lord comes to us and he says, I understand you live in a culture of death, but, but I, don't want, I don't want that to color the way that you grieve over death. We live in a, brothers and sisters, we live in a world of thorns and thistles that, man, they, they prick us and they make us bleed. But the Lord says, I have something better for you. Take a look at the overhead. If you put up First Thessalonians chapter 4, one more. No. Do you have the passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Should have been in the PowerPoints. No? Okay. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to just say a few words um, about it. I want you to listen to these words, okay? Verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Kids, when, when the Apostle Paul talks about falling asleep, he's talking about dying, because sometimes when people die, they look like they've fallen asleep. And he says, when people fall asleep, I don't want you to grieve like others grieve. 
And then he says this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him one day those who have fallen asleep. Now there's more to the passage, but then he ends the passage with these words, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the first thing he says in this passage is, you don't have to grieve like the world that has no hope. Then he lays out why we should not grieve as those who have no hope. And the final thing he says, and what I say to you as well, is when our loved ones die, and if they die in Christ, and they go into the ground. We have hope, but also we have an opportunity, which I see at Christian funerals and in graveside services where people kind of gather around and they give each other hugs and they encourage each other with the good news of the resurrection. So I end with this. Listen, one day, we're all going to die. Every one of us here. We have different personalities, different backgrounds, different histories, all of that, but one thing that we all have in common, we're all going to die. Is your hope found in Jesus and the coming resurrection? Because if it is not, or you're not sure, I plead with you from this podium, draw near to Christ. Stop your wandering. Stop your flitting about. Stop trying to kid yourself that you're still a spiritual human being and a religious human being, I guess, without ever attending a church. Commit your life to Christ. Commit your life to the church, whether it be this one. Love to have you or another church. But also this, those who are close to you also will one day die, and if they die in Jesus' arms, how are you going to grieve? Will you grieve in despair like the world around you, or will you grieve in light of the coming resurrection? May we all take comfort this morning in the fact that while the world gets flustered by death, we don't have to. Why is that? Because, brothers and sisters, God has liberated us. He has freed us to grieve with one eye on the grave, not denying the finality of the grave, but also he tempers that with the other eye focused on Jesus and the coming resurrection. Indeed, God has freed us to grieve in what we call covenant style. And such is the good news and the beauty of this, what seemed at the beginning a rather strange and obscure text. Let's, uh, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for, for what we call the gospel, for the good news of Jesus, which is found in every place of the Bible, whether in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, or this obscure text of Deuteronomy 14. But the gospel is there, and it is a gospel of life, and it is a gospel of hope. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope and the comfort of that gospel and the beauty of preaching from week to week that accentuates and explains and applies that gospel. And we're so thankful, O oh Lord, that we might be able to say that my only ultimate comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, now, but also into eternity. What a blessing, oh Father. Help us to think about these things in the coming week, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.